Hey, it's great to be with you today. Turn to the person closest to you and tell them you're better looking than who I sat with last week. Go ahead. Got to have some fun. Hey, thanks for the opportunity to be with you today. It is always great to be a part of Journey Church. Uh, Every time I come out here, I'm just amazed at the God thing you have going on. And it's fun to be part of a church where there's a God thing. I know you know that. That's part of why you're here. I want to thank you particularly for your support for Restore Community Church. We started uh, March 31st, so we're almost eight months old. Uh, Here's the quick report. About 250 people coming every week. That's awesome for eight months. We've seen 25 folks commit their lives to Christ, and that's been cool. So one out of ten. Uh, We're having fun, and they haven't fired me yet. So, you know, it's been a good journey. You guys were a big part of that. You were one of our financial partners. I tell people everywhere I go that we're a a church plant from Journey Church. Now, Christian, that basically means now you've become my spiritual dad. So I don't know how that works, buddy, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm liking... I'm liking the deal. And I want to thank you particularly for how you're partnering with God. You know, I I believe in every major city in America, God raises up certain key churches in certain part of town and that together they have a chance to change the spiritual landscape of a city. And you're certainly one of the churches God has raised up in this southeast quadrant. He's got big things in store for you. We're going to talk about that today. So thank you very, very much for the privilege of being here. We're in week four of a series on difference makers. Difference makers are people who chase the vision. They're people who want all that God has. And in week one, Pastor Christian led us to discover that God blesses us so that we can bless others. He works in our lives so that he can work in other lives, and that that blessing overflows. And generally what happens as the blessing overflows is you run out of room. You reach this, we got to provide more room moment. You reach this, our borders got to expand moment. That's what's happened at Journey. In week two, we learned about the fact that we have to leverage today, leverage today for impact tomorrow. I believe in carpe diem, seize the day. But I also believe in carpe manana. That's a Latin word and a Spanish word. It doesn't really work. Which is think about tomorrow or seize tomorrow. Because what we do today does affect our tomorrow and does affect next year and does affect five years from now and ten years from now and the next generation. So we have to think in that term as well. And then last week we learned about radical generosity, how to give more, how to move beyond the tithe. Today I want to talk to you about audacious faith. Audacious faith. I'm not just talking about faith that gets you saved. I'm talking about faith that sees God do big and crazy things. Here's the idea. God works in us to change our lives so he can then work through us to change others' lives. Now, I think I can demonstrate that for you. God works in us this way. The first project is let's change Sutherland. Let's take this angry, self-centered 17-year-old and let's see if we can make him a peaceful, loving, kind, think about others more like Jesus, 63-year-old. And it's a lifetime process. It's taken a lot of years. But God changes me first because until there's change here, 
I have no ability to affect change here. But once God has worked in me, now God can work through me. If I've found his joy, I could give his joy away. If I have found his peace, I could give his peace away. If I have found his plan for my life, I can help others find his plan for their life. He works in us so that he can work through us. Now, why does he do that? Because God wants to do something huge. Huge. How big is your God? I don't want a little God. I don't want a God I can understand. Can you imagine how messed up we would be if I could explain God? I want a God who's big and a God who thinks big and a God who dreams big, and he does. Want proof? Thank you for asking. It's found in 1 Corinthians. That's our text today. I became a Christ follower as a 17-year-old, and I decided I'd read the Bible, and I made the mistake of starting in the Old Testament And about the time I got to Leviticus, I thought, there's got to be some better stuff in here somewhere. So somebody told me to try the New Testament. So I jumped in the Gospels and loved them. And I really loved 1 Corinthians. And when I found this verse and read it for the first time as a 17-year-old senior in high school, it became a life verse for me. It became a verse that God has driven into my soul and into my heart and into my life. And I've literally built my life around the promise of this verse. Look at what it says. It says, things that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and mind has not imagined all that God has prepared for those who love him. That that is a huge verse. That verse says, The thing that you've seen God do that's the biggest, most miraculous thing you've ever seen, God has more. The stuff you've heard about God doing that's just amazing, God has more. The stuff you've dreamed up in your own mind of what God could do, God has more. He wants to do something big. He's God. That's what he does. And he's saying to his church, will you partner with me in changing the spiritual landscape of this city? My dream is that churches around Kansas City would partner with God in such a way that the spiritual landscape of Kansas City could be changed and we could see Kansas City come to Christ. And if that happened, that model could be replicated in cities across North America. Now, if I can dream that big, tell me how big God's dream is. Because it says things you haven't seen, things you haven't heard, things you haven't thought of, I already have prepared. God already has this for those who love him. Reminds me of a story about a guy who goes to heaven and St. Peter meets him at the gate. Let me stop and say, anytime you hear a story that starts like this, it's a made-up story. Everybody know that? We don't get reports back from people that go to heaven and meet with St. Peter. St. Peter's a gatekeeper. This guy goes to heaven, meets St. Peter. St. Peter says, let me give you a tour. Takes him to this huge Walmart-sized storeroom. Superstore. And it's full of gifts, beautifully wrapped Beautifully packaged gifts, thousands of them. And St. Peter said, go ahead, check out a gift. The guy picks up a gift, and it's got his name on it. And he picks up the next gift, and it's got his name on it. 
and he keeps going. They've all got his name on it. He gets excited. He turns to Peter and he says, is this my reward in heaven for what I did on earth? And St. Peter says, no, this is all the stuff God had for you while you were on earth that you never asked for. I want it all. I want it all. I want stuff I haven't seen to still happen in my life. I want stuff I haven't heard about. I want stuff I haven't even dreamed up yet. I want every gift God has for me. I want it all. And if that means I have to be an all-in Christ follower to get it, I'm all in. That's audacious faith. Not just faith that saves, but faith that makes us pursue Christ with a full, full heart. What does that look like? What I'd like to do today is just share with you three things I've learned about audacious faith in the 46 years I've been following Christ and the 45 years I've been a pastor. Here's number one, if you're taking notes. Number one, audacious faith starts with a whatever-it-takes attitude. Audacious faith starts with a whatever-it-takes attitude. I learned this in my early 30s when I was replanting a church in South Florida. Now, replanting means the denomination hands you a dead church and asks you to bring it back to life. There are two major miracles in the world. One is the planting of a new church, birth, and the other is the replanting of an existing church that's called resurrection. You with me? Bringing new life out of something that's dead. By the way, we serve a God who majors in both birth and resurrection. That's what he does. Things that are reborn and resurrected. So I go to this church. I'm 33 years old. The average age of the church is 65. They all look like I now look. And I talk to them that first day as their new pastor, and I say, I really believe God is asking us to have a whatever-it-takes attitude How many of you are willing to do whatever it takes to reach this community for Christ? And about a third raised their hand. The other two-thirds were telling the truth, and that third was lying. Because basically it was a church of 204 people that said, us 204 and no more. We're happy with it like it is. But we begin asking God to do things we hadn't seen, asking God to do things we hadn't heard of, asking God to do things we hadn't even dreamed up. I'd close every service with how many are willing to do whatever it takes to change the spiritual landscape of this city. And gradually, they got it. They got it. And over the next 13 years, God grew us from that dead church into a new one, from 200 people to 3,000. We planted 23 other churches, and that whatever-it-takes attitude became standard. In the church, we printed it on t shirts. We printed it in Spanish on t shirts because we're in Miami. Dispuesto a todo, which is even stronger in Spanish because it means I'm willing to do it all. I'm willing to do whatever. It got to the point where I'd talk to somebody and say to them, We need help with the youth. Can you help us out? Whatever it takes, Pastor, sure. Whatever it takes. I remember. In the early 90s, when Hurricane Andrew hit Miami, it missed our area, but it hit the south part of town about 30 minutes from us. And I showed up at church that Sunday in jeans and a T-shirt, and I said, we're not having church today. We're going to meet and pray for five minutes, 
and you're going to go home, and you're going to go to the grocery store because we have stores that are open, and they don't. I want you to buy igloos. I want you to buy bags of ice. I want you to buy non-perishable foods. We're going to fill up our cars and our pickups, and we're going to make a caravan to Miami, and it's going to take us three hours to get there because the roads are all messed up and power lines are all down. We'll meet here at 1 o'clock. I hope everybody will come. And by then, that church of 400 had 400 people show up at 1 o'clock. And instead of going to church, we became the church that day. And that whatever it takes spirit kept growing. It kept growing and kept growing. Today, that's a church of 9,000. 60% of the people who attend there came to faith in Christ after they came. Whatever it takes. That's a big, big part. Attitude. Turn to your neighbor and say, fix your attitude, baby. (laughs) Baby. Got to use the baby part. There's two guys sitting over here going, I ain't doing that. I ain't calling you baby. Not happening. Secondly, audacious faith also means a servant's heart. Because you got this bold, courageous faith, this, this, this faith that's got an edge on it, this whatever it takes attitude. It has to be balanced out. And the balance is a servant's heart. Because Jesus has called us to service. He's called us to learn that it's not about us it's about others. And I learned this in my 40s in a church in Charlotte, North Carolina. After we had seen this church resurrected and God had worked and got up to 3,000, we were two months short of a new building, which meant that the next phase of growth was going to be even more amazing. And uh, I said, I'm done. You know, I'm done. I need to go plant another church. I love when it goes well. I like it even better when I have to start over. It's just the way I'm shaped. It's what I do. I love starting churches, getting them through crisis, getting them going, getting them strong, giving them away, and go do it again. So we moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, and we started with five guys around my fire pit on Sunday nights. And the five of us were from five different churches in Charlotte, and we would pray for the other churches in Charlotte. And after we'd been doing that for a couple of months, God began saying to me in my prayer time with him, Sutherland, I don't know why he calls me by my last name, but I swear he does. I just always hear it that way. Sutherland, I want you to play at another church, this one focusing on serving the community. I thought, that's kind of an unusually specific thing, but that impression just wouldn't go away. So for two months, I kept hearing, Sutherland, start a church to serve the community. And we're sitting at the fireside one night with my five guys. That's all we got. And one of them says, you know what? God's been telling me for the last two months, we need to start a church that serves the community. I nearly swallowed my cigar. (laughs) I really did. Because the guy said exactly what God had been saying to me. So we planted Next Level Church. And it was built on two ideas. Take your commitment to Christ to the next level and take your commitment to serving your neighbor to the next level. Your commitment to Christ, your commitment to service. And God did crazy things. Even while we were two, three hundred people in that first few months, we began serving the community. We, we went to downtown Charlotte and found several homes that we could rehab that we could, could remodel. And Home Depot found out what we were doing and volunteered 
the, the lumber. And plumbers found out what we were doing and volunteered to redo the plumbing. And electricians, and, and soon this little church of two or three hundred is doing five, six, eight, ten houses being remodeled in downtown Charlotte. And word gets out of the community that there's actually a church who cares about the community. A group of ladies in our church got a heart for a school that was nearby where most of the kids were Title I kids. They were in financially challenging backgrounds, and they qualified for a school lunch that was free. But the counselor there kept telling us, some of these kids, this is the only meal they get all day. And when they go home on Friday, some of them come back just hungry as they could be Monday because they haven't been fed at home, either because mom doesn't have it or mom is too bombed out of her mind or dad's out of the picture, and it's just not a good circumstance. So we started a backpack ministry where we would take new backpacks and pack them full of things over the weekend on Thursday night and give them to every kid in the school on Friday and tell them, bring it back empty on Monday. And this church of two or 300 is packing 1,300 backpacks a week. And the word gets out that we're there to serve the community. And in two years' time, there's a 1,000 of us because word gets out that we're there to serve the community. We went crazy far to do this. This is going to stretch some of you, but I'm going home in an hour, so it's all good. We went to every bar in the city of Charlotte and gave out shot glasses. We'd go to the bartender and we'd say, Sir, I I know that you, you got a lot of people telling you their life stories. Oh, yeah, man. Every night there's somebody in here that's had a little too much to drink that's telling me every problem they got. Yeah, you're like the pastor in this bar, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what I am. Well, the next time you got somebody that's in a real crisis, we want you to know that we're a church that will help them. And we gave them a shot glass that said, give us a shot, next level church. (laughs) Now, my other Baptist pastors in town decided I was a heretic. But Neil Cavuto put it on national TV. And it made the reputation of the church even more that we were a church that would serve the community. And when the community believes you're a church that's there for the community, where do they come when they're in trouble? Who do they call when there's a need? Somebody's going through a crisis, where do they show up? Audacious faith. It's got a whatever-it-takes attitude, but it's got a servant's heart. I want to compliment you, Journey. This is who you are. This is how you're becoming known in this community as a church that cares. That is awesome. The third part is the stretching part for me. Audacious faith is a whatever-it-takes attitude. It is a servant's heart. But the one that really took me a while to learn is that audacious faith means radical generosity, radical generosity. I didn't learn this until I was 50. And it was in my 50s that Mary and I started on a new journey in generosity. Now, let me stop and say, I have always tithed. I was raised in a very Baptist home with a very Baptist dad uh, who had three rules. If you sleep in my house on Saturday night, you're going to church, you're going to polish your shoes because nobody goes to church with beat-up shoes, and you're going to take your offering. He would give us our allowance on Saturday, which was 50 cents. Woo! And that 50 cents always came as a quarter, two dimes, and a nickel because he would look at you and say, 
go polish your shoes and go get your offering envelope ready. Because he taught us from early on that 90% of what we make with God's hands on it would go farther than 100% of what we made without God's blessing. And you know what? He was right. God's worth 10%, folks. When I go to a restaurant, if it's bad service, I still tip 10%. God's worth a whole lot more than that. So I learned that as a kid. By the way, I polished my boots last night. Dad's in heaven, but I know he's checking. You know, make sure I have. He's checking about my giving. He wants to know all of that. I learned how to do this. So Mary and I, for 30 years as pastors, had always tithed, and we'd always given to the extra stuff. If there was a building project, we'd give to that. If there was a Christmas drive, we'd give to that. If there was a single mom in the church that needed help, we'd do that. The backpack ministry, we'd do that. We, we tithed, and we gave extra stuff as we chose. But I started thinking, I, want to, I wonder what radical generosity would look like. So I said to Mary, hey, I can't get us to radically generous overnight, but would you commit with me that it'd be okay if we raised our tithing 1% a year? She said, sure. So last year in 2019, this year in 2019, the year that's still current, we're giving away 22% of what we make. Because for the last 12 years, we've raised it a percent. Next year in 2020, we'll give away 23% of what we make. Now, some of you are saying, that's easy to do when you make lots of money. I'm a church planter, folks. My salary in 2019 is $60,000. It's the same salary I had 30 years ago. Because when you keep growing a church up to big and then giving it away and going to planting another one, you get a nice salary and then it goes down. And you get a nice salary and then it goes down. And this is just the way that it works, and it's all good. But we gave away 22% this year, and we're going to give away 23% next year. And it's fun. Mary asked me the other day, what happens if we live to be 100? And I said, I'll be gone before then, and you'll be very generous. Now, to do that, we've had to change how we live. In fact, would you write this down? If how much you give does not impact how you live... It's not radical generosity. Now, we were generous all those years that we tithed and that we gave to extra things. We were generous, but it wasn't radical. It wasn't sacrificial. Let me tell you what radical generosity looks like for us. I drive a 2009 truck with rust on it. My wife drives a 2003 Pilot with no rust because it gets kept in the garage. We have downsized three times. We currently live in a 1,300-square-foot ranch home. We don't eat out much. We have simplified our lives to increase our giving, and it has been a blast. I'm going to be freaking rich in heaven. (laughs) Do you hear that? Jesus said you ought to store up treasure. You ought to build it up. But he said don't do it here on earth. But in heaven, how do you do that? Send it ahead. How do you send it ahead? You give it away. Y'all come see me in heaven. I'm going to have a nice place. Hole downstairs, you can smoke cigar anywhere you want. I'll provide the cigars. Some of you are going, I'm not coming. You could go upstairs. <laughs> the point is, it's been a blast to move into a generosity that doesn't make sense. There are months 
that I look at the income and the outcome and I go, there is no way we can give away 22% this month. And God comes through every single month. That's just played fun. It's going to take radical generosity here. That's where you're at. It's going to take people reaching deep and giving big. One of the things that's happened in my life is because I've had some success in the churches where I have planted and pastored, everybody decides that if you have success as a pastor, you must know what you're doing. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. It's simply been because God has been good and I've honored God, he's honored me. That's been the deal. But people decide, you must know what you're doing. And Pastor Christian's already having this happen. Once you've led successful growing churches, other pastors start seeking you out for counsel and consulting. They start inviting you to speak at conferences. They want you to write books. They want you to tell. They're looking for the secret sauce. They're looking for the secret formula that made your church grow. And I've had this experience in so many ways. One of them was back in the late 90s in South Florida uh, at, at, at the church there in Miami. We had grown so quickly. We were multiplying churches. We'd started more churches in the, in the 90s than any other church of the Southern Baptist Convention. So they sent a writer and an editor and a photographer to our church to stay with us for four days to write an article called The Keys to the Success of Flamingo Road Church. So they show up, and uh, I go take them to lunch on a Saturday. They just show up in town, and the guy says, Hey, uh, we're here, Pastor. Thanks for your time. I want to interview you today, but we would, uh, we'd like to interview some of your other people. We're supposed to write an article with how you guys are growing so fast and how you planted so many churches, and what are you doing that's better and bigger and different from other churches, and we'd like to share those with other churches. And I said, No problem, but what you're going to find is it's a God thing. And the guy said, well, I know it's a God thing, but there's got to be some stuff y'all are doing bigger and better and different from other churches. I said, not really. It's pretty much just God. He said, well, can I interview your staff? I said, sure. Can I interview your people between services on Sunday? Yeah, absolutely. We were doing a pastor's conference that week on Monday and Tuesday. He said, can I ask those who attend the conference why they're coming to this conference? And I said, yeah, interview anybody you want. Knock yourself out. It's a God thing. So Wednesday, after they'd been there four days, they came back to my office on their way out of town, and the guys all sit down, and the lead guy said, I've never been more frustrated in my life. I said, well, why is that? He said, for four days, we have studied your church to find out what you do better. He said, y'all are not any better than anybody else. Your preaching's no better than anybody else. Your worship's no better than anybody else. Your kid's stuff's no better than anybody else. He said, we can't figure it out. Why are you growing this fast, and why are you planting so many other churches? And I said, it's a God thing. And the guy looked at me and said, I cannot write an article called It's a God Thing. I said, you got a problem then, buddy, because it's a God thing. We're done here. They wrote an article called It's a God Thing. (laughs) That's the church I want to be in. I don't want to be in a church where everybody goes, well, of course you got thousands coming. That guy has got the voice of God. By the way, God does speak Texican. That's what you're hearing today in case you're wondering, Texican. Or no wonder you've got so many people coming. The worship there is incredible. The kids stuff there is incredible. Do I want all those things? Sure. 
but I want people to come to say, God keeps drawing me here. I experience Jesus when I come to this place. I want it to be a God thing. Because I've had success in some places and seen God things in some places, I've done some consulting with churches the last 20 years. And here's what I'd like to say to you, Journey Church, if I put on my consultant hat, if I took off my friend hat and took off my one of your church planners hats and put on my consultant hat for a minute, here's what I'd say to you right now. You ready? There it is. Right now at Journey Church, the shoe is telling the foot how big it can be. I love this building. But it's been 80% full in every service I have been to for years. I love the fact that you've got two other services going at the middle school on Sunday morning. This shoe is telling the foot how big it can be. If you want to do an interesting search this afternoon, I'd ask you to look up Chinese foot binding. Foot binding. It's a practice that was really popular in China from about 700 A.D. into the 1700s A.D. There are even claims that it still exists in some very rural mountain spots throughout China. For some reason, in the 700s, 800s A.D., the Chinese culture decided that women with small feet were the most attractive women in the culture. Small, petite feet. So they started this practice that is barbaric. You can read this online. When a girl was four or five or six or seven years old at the most, they would bring her in and break all of her toes. And they would pull the toes underneath the foot. And then to make room for the toes, they would take the arch of the foot and pull it up, many times actually breaking the foot. So instead of a foot that's got a heel and a little bit of up and then just toes, it now has a heel and a higher arch and toes curled under. If you look it up online, you will literally get sick at your stomach over how they deformed the feet of women. But when they did all this breaking, when they were four, five, six, seven years old, they would then take leather straps and bind the foot and tie it up where it could not grow. And they would practice this binding until the, the child was a 16 or 17-year-old adult. And at that moment, they'd take the foot off, and it was a deformed, toes curled in, high arch, shorter foot. An adult woman would have the foot of a child. The shoe told the foot how big it could be. You guys need a bigger shoe. Now, I don't like buildings. Buildings are okay. They're just a tool. This is a great building. It's a great building to be the size you are now. It's not going to take you much farther. You've got to have a bigger shoe. That's why you're doing what you're doing. This is what's happening now at Journey Church. You've had this eight-year amazing journey with this absolutely solid, audacious faith where you've had a whatever-it-takes attitude and you've had a servant's heart and you have absolutely learned to give generously and it's now time to crank it up another notch. You've seen 600 people make a decision and be baptized in the last eight years. 
That could be another thousand in the next four or five. Where are you going to put them? In this shoe? Not in this shoe. Time for another shoe. I believe God is doing his part. He's asking you guys to do yours. I want to close with a story that I've probably told before because I tell this story everywhere I go. It's one of my favorite stories. And um, it's about two of my favorite people in the world, our kids. Our kids are adopted. We tell people all the time, if we'd had kids biologically ours, they'd have been dumb and ugly. Because we adopted them, they're bright and beautiful, and we could brag on them because we had nothing to do with them. When our son was four years old, we had taught him for all four years of his life that he was chosen. That what adopted meant was chosen. We read him a book called The Chosen Baby. I encourage any of you with adopted or fostered kids to get this book. It talks about the concept that the parents choose the child deliberately. It's a great book. It really helps kids that are adopted or fostered. And he'd been hearing this book read to him for four years. He's in a, four, he's in a four-year-old K-4 program at, at the school, and he goes for half a day. So about two months into that, maybe October of that year, my wife gets a phone call from his teacher that says, Mrs. Sutherland, I'm having a little problem with your son. Could you and Mr. Sutherland come by for a parent-teacher conference tomorrow? My wife is devastated. He's four, and he's already in trouble. I said, honey, he's four. How much trouble can he be in? So we go the next day, and uh, the teacher sends Jared out with her assistant to play out in the playground, looks at us, does a little small talk because it's Mississippi, and that's what you do. You be nice in Mississippi. And then she said, I've got to get to it. I'm having a problem with your son. I understand he's adopted. And I said, yes, ma'am. He's very proud of it. She said, that's the problem. I said, well, ma'am, how's that a problem? And she said, well, he has the other kids in the room feeling bad. I said, ma'am, I still don't understand. She said, well, he was the special helper last week. And the helper passes out the snacks every day to the other kids. And for five days last week, as he handed out the snack, he looked each kid in the eye and said to them, my parents chose me. Your parents got stuck with you. (laughs) And I looked at the teacher and said, I don't see what the problem is. Before time began, God chose you. He said, I'm going to adopt that one. Because if I adopt that one, he'll go out and tell my other lost kids they can find a home. God is the ultimate father. And he's looking for a church and churches in every city in America who love lost kids more than they love themselves. Churches who will walk in that whatever-it-takes attitude and that servant's heart and that radical generosity. And when he finds that church, he floods them with his lost kids. You're already that church. You're going to be that church even more. Proud of you. Believe in you. Praying for you. Let's pray right now.
Father, I'm blown away that before time began, you chose Dan Sutherland. I don't know what you saw in me, but I'm so grateful you did. And I'm grateful now, Lord, that you work in me so you can work through me, that you bless me so I can bless others, that you take care of me so that I can be generous. And I thank you, Lord, for being a small part of changing this city for you. Thank you for what you have done at Journey, for what you are doing, and what you will do. We thank you for the thousands that will find you in this place. In Christ we pray. Amen. Let's give God a hand. Can we do that? Thanks. Folks, could you thank Dan for taking a Sunday off from his church in West Shawnee and being with us today? Dan, thank you so much. You know, Journey, I don't know about you. Um, I don't want to be a great church. I want to be a God church. I don't, want, I don't want people to say great things about our church. I want people to say great things about Jesus. I've told you my, my hope is that 25, 30 years from now, there are way more people in this community who know the name of Jesus than the name of Journey. Um, but I want God to do great things through our church. And the reality is, as you just heard Pastor Dan say, like, we need a bigger shoe. We need, we need a bigger shoe. And as long as the foot keeps growing, we need to be willing to move to bigger shoes because there are still lost kids in our community who don't know Jesus yet. And we simply don't have, we don't have room for them at our church right now. Not only do we not have room for lost kids who don't know Jesus yet, we don't, have, we don't have room for our family. If you could have imagined your family traveling from all over, wherever they live, to your place on Thanksgiving, and meeting in the front yard on Thursday morning at Thanksgiving dinner and saying a prayer, and then saying, okay, we're all going to have lunch, but we're going we're gonna to eat in five different houses. Scatter, we'll see you later. It wouldn't feel like family. And that's what our church does every Sunday. There's not enough room in our living room for our family. There's not enough room at our table for our family. So we kind of gather and then we scatter in a bunch of different directions. And we believe God's calling us now to come back together with three very specific priorities. We've been showing you this building for the past few weeks. If we take the lid off of it, three areas where we want to focus. One, a 1,200-seat auditorium so that all of our church can at least worship together on the same day under the same roof. It may take a few services but we won't be scattered like crazy. We know God is calling us to provide room in our building for our church to be together before church, during church, after church, a place where our spiritual community can gather. When I told Dan this morning kind of the priorities of our building, the auditorium, the community space, he interrupted me and he said, whatever you have for community space, double it. And I said, we've already done that. We've already done that. This atrium is larger than our entire first phase of our building because we believe the most important ministry in our church will not happen in the auditorium. It will be people spending time with people before, during, and after church during the week. So we have a priority of a huge community space, which we do not have right now, and upgraded children's ministry so that as our kids grow and bring their friends, we have plenty of room for all the children in our church, um, infant all the way through fifth grade and eventually an expanded children's ministry if we can raise enough money. We believe, we believe this is what our foot looks like and we would like a shoe that fits the body that God has given us as a church right now. We've told you in order to make this happen, we're entering a two-year campaign where we're asking people to pledge above and beyond their regular giving what they normally give 
And we're praying that we can raise eight to nine million dollars worth of pledges, take a small and responsible financing package alongside that, and build, begin building this building, uh, and have it completed in the next 18 months. That's, that's our goal. But for that to happen, everyone who God is calling to lean in is really going to have to lean in. Here's what we've said about this project. One, we've said not everyone is supposed to give. Some of you are just not at a point financially right now where you can give. It wouldn't even be spiritually responsible for you to give. We don't want you to feel any shame. We don't want you to feel any guilt. We don't want you to give anything if it's not your season to give. Just pray. Maybe you gave at the last built church you were at. Maybe you'll give at the next one. But if it's not your season, don't worry. We, we think we can say that because we believe this. If everyone gives what God has called them to give, if we all give what God has called us to do, our parts of it, all of them put together, will be enough to get us there. You say, Christian, how are we going to know that's, that's happened? How are we going to know that we've made it? What we've been asking people to do, kind of the mechanics of this campaign as we head towards the end of the year and the inside of your bulletin every week for the past few weeks, for the next two weeks, we've got our pledge card. We're going to ask you on or before December 15th, pull this out of your bulletin if you haven't already to take a look at it, um, to hand in this pledge card or to go to our site online and to, to turn in your pledge that way. Um, we're going to ask all of you who have been called to give to give through this pledge card, a two-year pledge above and beyond your regular giving because that's what it takes to do ministry 52 weeks a year inside our church. When you turn this in on or before December 15th, it will look like this. You'll give a total. Here's my two-year amount. And then the part of that that you're going to give at the very front on December 15th, which we're calling our first fruit Sunday. So you'll give the first part of your pledge plus what we can anticipate if God is good over the next two years, you will be able to give. You say, what does that number look like? It's going to look different for everyone. I had a great question asked of me last Sunday after our 1030 service at Summit Lakes. Uh, I got to talk to a young mom in our church who had a cancer scare several years ago um, or had cancer several years ago and all of the medical procedures that went into going through treatment, going through chemotherapy, getting healthy, um, led them to filing bankruptcy. They just couldn't keep up with it. And she said, for the last three or four years, because of that experience, we have been afraid to give. We've been afraid to tithe, but we talk about it all the time. We're just scared. And I taught on giving last week, and she said, as you talked about from Abram all the way through Hebrews 7, you know, that people worship by giving a tenth. She said, my husband and I, we literally decided during the service we were going to start doing that again. She said, could, could our tithe be our pledge number if we don't normally give it? Can it be tithes and offerings um, or is that just like what we're going to give more than we gave this year? And I said, great question. Any new giving would actually be more than, than you've given. And the reality is this. I think the median income in Lee Summit is $70,000 a year. If just our whole church tithed, that would be a $14,000 pledge for everyone. And I've told you, according to statistics, 80% of people in churches don't tithe. We wouldn't even have to do this campaign. Like if everyone just tithed, we'd just pay for the building and build it and, and move on. That's not where we are. But maybe that's how God's going to speak to you. They were in our 930 service today. She and her husband came up um, after church and just said, we tithe for the very first time today in more than five years. And she said, I thought I was going to be afraid, and I can't tell you how much joy I felt in doing it. So whatever your number is, whether it's $100, $1,000, $100,000, or a $1 million, I've, I've been telling you every week, I've been praying for three years, God would allow somebody to give a million-dollar gift. That happened on Monday. So we started this series. I told you when we started this series, absolutely, we should put our hands together for that. 
When we started this series, I told you we had to get to 8 million, but we were already at 4.2. As of Monday, we're at 5.2, just like that. Now, if you're thinking, Christian, I was actually praying about giving that million dollars. There's still seats at that table. Like if you're, if you're thinking, does that mean you don't need that anymore? No, we got a long way to go. There's always room at the table for people who want to give a million dollars to make a huge impact on our church. So if you've been thinking of that, do not let that discourage you from giving. Maybe we've been praying for one, but God has two. But whatever your part will be. Here's the reality. If $8 million is a, is a four-lap race, like we're almost on the last lap, we got 2.8 to go. we got 2.8 to go, and it's going to be made up of everyone carrying the baton for their stretch of the race. Maybe your stretch is a $100 stretch. Carry that baton and then hand it to the next person. Maybe your stretch is a $10,000 stretch. Carry your paces and hand it to the next one. Maybe your stretch is a $100,000 stretch. Run your laps and hand it. Because I believe if everyone who's supposed to give will give, what God tells them to give, and will lean in in radical generosity. Man, I heard Pastor Dan. I was so challenged by him today. He's, he's almost at that Jewish culture of threshold, that 23%. I thought, man, I need, to, I need to do that. He started at 50. If I started at 41, you know, man, maybe, maybe I could get there. Um, I was challenged. Radical generosity. Man, if all of us lean in, I believe that when we announce on our Christmas services, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, here's where we are that, that we'll be there and we'll be building soon. If we're a little short, we'll tell you what we know, what we don't know. We'll figure out what we can build with what we give and we'll move forward. But my prayer is that we will get there, that everyone will be faithful, that everyone will be generous and we will get there. If God's calling you to give, give generously, give sacrificially, give a number in faith, not just finances. And let's pray together that we all get there. 2.8 to go. This race started a long way behind us. 2.8 to go. Let's run the last lap together well. Run the part you're supposed to run. Carry your baton, hand it off, and hopefully through everyone's faithfulness, we'll get there together. I'm going to pray. Pastor Mike's going to come give a few closing announcements before we get out of here today. Thanks for being with us. Looking forward to next Sunday, so come on back and be a part of it. God, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we are grateful for the ministry and the mentorship of Pastor Dan. And Lord, we're thankful for his church plant, Restore Community over in West Shawnee. We pray you continue to bless them. Bless them for lending him to us today. Thank you for what he taught us about a move of God. Lord, we don't want our church just to be a great church. We want it to be a move of God. We want to live inside a move of God. God, we thank you for how we have gotten to where we are today, $5.2 million already pledged towards this project. But Lord, the the gap between where we are and where we need to go is still God-sized. So speak to the hearts of our people. And Lord, have everyone who's supposed to lean in run their lap faithfully, run their paces faithfully. And Lord, when we finish, let that baton get across the finish line of where we need to get to move on this facility. We can't do it without you. We wouldn't want to do it without you. So God, be with us and help us. And we ask these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.